This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. Welcome, 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 everybody, to The Best Seats Podcast, episode 13. I am your host, Crawford McCarthy. As always, thank you to Allie Coyle for providing the music for the show. You can find her at AllieCoyleMusic.com or on Instagram at Allie Coyle. As a reminder, now that we are 13 episodes in, don't ask me why, but I like that number, the episodes are going to be going early to those who subscribe on Patreon at the $2 or above tier as soon as they release a couple days before the public gets them. So if you are on Patreon listening, thank you so much for the support. If you're on free feeds, thank you for listening regardless. Uh, Today's show guest is a very special person that I've been looking forward to interviewing for a while, Mr. James Kavanagh. Now, James runs the Dining Project Orange County, and he's in a very interesting position because while he is a chef and he feeds people and runs a business, it is not a brick and mortar because he runs a pop-up. The Dining Project is a pop-up dinner series that he has started with a handful of people, which you will hear more about in the interview Um, it's a really, really great experience, but pop-ups are kind of one of those things that are very interesting in how they've been affected by COVID-19, obviously not having a physical location, they're saving money in some respects, so it's not hitting them as hard, but at the same time, they don't have venues to put on these projects. Uh, they don't have the ability to push the creative, I guess, kind of styles that they were doing before all of this. Um, And it's kind of been interesting. Their life has definitely been put on pause. So sitting down with James today, kind of hearing how he's been staying busy, what he's been doing during all of this has been a really interesting interview. So I hope that you enjoy this uh, episode. This was a really fun one to record. He's a great guy. He's staying busy by doing some cooking. So make sure that you do hit him up on social media, which you will find out about at the end of the show. And yeah, I hope you enjoy episode 13 of the Best Seats podcast featuring the founder and chef of the Dining Project, Orange County, James Caveness. Thanks so much. Crawford, what's up? What's up, brother? How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for taking the time. Good. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor. No worries. I'm happy to do it. I appreciate you uh, finding some time to obviously kind of set up this little phone call. I wish we could do this in person, but obviously still kind of dealing with COVID-19 and social distancing, the best way to do it. But I'm super, super happy to get you on and get this episode down. Um, I've been loving what you've been doing kind of between Dining Project, which we'll talk about and everything else. Uh, For those that are listening that may not be familiar with your work, would you mind just kind of introducing yourself real quick and kind of what you do and a little bit about, uh, about your background? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, obviously my name is, my name is James Cavanis. Uh, I'm the chef and co-founder of, uh, the Dining Project Orange County. It's, um, kind of a new pop-up, um, um, kind of structured dinner. Um, we, uh, we do basically just pop the dinner throughout Orange County. Um, our whole focus is kind of just to kind of, um, what's the word? I'm trying to find the words, uh, highlight the, the community per se. Uh, my philosophy is, um, it's not about 
necessarily the chef. Obviously, the chef and, and the team are doing the work, but I think at the end of the day, there's so much more that goes into to not only the dish, but the dinner and the experience that a lot of people don't see. And that's something I love about what you're doing is your um, kind of highlighting all of the background that goes into it. You know, so that's something that we focus on also. Uh, sustainability, obviously, is huge. Um, but we partner with a lot of small businesses and we try to support and shout out all of our purveyors as well, not only just cook for, uh, for people that are Orange County. So. Where were you guys hosting kind of the dining project before this all kind of broke out? What was business like before, obviously, we kind of had to distance everything? Yeah, yeah. So uh, what we, we were kind of focusing on uh, the Laguna Beach area. We got a lot of support from another kind of cafe. Um, we actually did a Valentine's Day dinner at the Kitchen in the Canyon. We took over Hotel Laguna. Uh, we took over their back patio uh, for two days uh, in September of last year. So we kind of hopped around, but yeah, um, kind of Laguna Beach uh, is home for me. I was the, the sous chef at Surf and Sand Resort for a little bit uh, before I left uh, to do the dining project. But um, we also did a brunch in Santa Ana at a, a Maz Cafe, a small little cute coffee shop. Um, kind of right off the of Fort Street Market. So places like that, yeah. So before we jump into the pain in the ass stuff about what life is like kind of during COVID-19 and eventually post-COVID-19, <laughs> how did the dining project get started? Because I think pop-ups for a lot of people, I mean, there's a handful of them out there uh, that are very, very good as far as Orange County goes. They're definitely not a new phenomenon by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but mm -hmm. how did you kind of come up with the concept and where did it, uh, I guess, just kind of come from? Um, so basically, I had completed some time at uh, Manresa by David Kench, and um, I was in my my third, fourth year, I think, at Surf and Sand. And um, Chef Ron Fougere there was, was great to me, giving me a lot of support. Um, and I kind of just got to the point where I was kind of ready to do do my thing, you know, really willing to take the risk and wanting to kind of explore more um, in my own creative element. Not to say that we. I wasn't given that opportunity at, at Surfinstan because I definitely was, but um, I was um, um, got really close with uh, my now business partner Patrick uh, Patrick Fremery, who was a server and um, is a server still there. But uh, we kind of wanted to share our philosophy. Um, but I guess to to answer your question more in depth, um, I was uh, just thinking about cooking for you know my, my family friends and just to kind of do something under my name, just kind of for fun almost. And I had approached Patrick to help me out to do the wine and the service aspect of it. Um, and uh, it actually got a lot of traction. And uh, so word spread a little bit. And we kind of thought, you know, we'll take the risk and we'll we'll kind of explore. We'll jump in with, with you know, two feet and kind of just go for it. And, uh, you know, obviously there's there's a lot of learning experiences, but we're, we're really happy with kind of where we're going. So. so doing time under David Kinch up at Manresa, um, did you just go up and stage with him? Yeah, I was there. I was just a just short stage. I had, I had, um, you know, his, his book came out, and um, that's a uh, fascinating thing about everybody in that kitchen is they all got there because of pretty much reading his book and it was a destination. But yeah, it was just um, a short stage there. Um, but it kind of opened my eyes. I learned a lot, and a lot of his philosophies and techniques, um, especially like fermentation and things like that, really touched with with um, kind of my Filipino and Asian uh, background. And obviously, you know, California kind of is is um, very prominent in what he's doing. And I thought that there was something in what they were doing that can be brought to Southern California and kind of introduced 
to the to the dining population down here. So that's what we are trying to do, um, slowly but surely. So for those that are listening that may not know, Manresa, a restaurant up in Northern California, David Kinch is arguably one of the best chefs on the West Coast easily, and I would say probably one of the most important in the U.S. If you are still killing time and you're listening to this while you are in quarantine, please check out Mind of a Chef. It is on Netflix. David Kinch has a whole season, I believe, dedicated to him, or at least half a season. Extremely valuable watching. Um, He's done a lot of influence. So Zach Gearson, who is no longer here in California, he recently moved to Florida. Uh, He ran Journeyman's up in Fullerton, also Mm -hmm. did time under Kinch, and he was a big proponent of kind of fermentation, stuff like that. Um, I recently recorded an episode with Tony Celeste of Whitestone, and we discussed fermentation, but let's touch on that a little bit more because while everybody's home and everybody's kind of baking and cooking and doing sourdough starters, fermentation, I think, is still something that's kind of foreign to a lot of people. Can you kind of give your kind of quick 30 second, um, basically kind of definition of fermentation and then how it is utilized in your cooking? Um, so quick 30 seconds, you know, uh, in a short glance, fermentation is to me kind of a way to get a deeper flavor out of something. You know, there's, there's take mushrooms, for example, you know, there's, there's the deep rich umami, you know, everybody uses it as the replacement for meat, but you go and you, you ferment it and you'll get a lot more deeper, richer, a lot more earthier flavors. So, for example, we, we reduce all of our sauces and our glazes with some fermented mushrooms, um, which gives it just a kind of a bigger punch uh, of umami, kind of more in your face. And it, it's, it's a secret um, kind of ingredient technique in everything that we do. Uh, we don't use salt. We actually season with fermented vegetables. So it kind of just helps us accent everything else a little bit more. And, and it's natural. And I think that's important as well. If somebody was still sitting at home, depending on when they're listening to this, in their kind of stay-at-home order, is there basically kind of a, a starter fermentation that somebody could do at home to kind of dip their toe in the water? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the most basic is uh, is lacto-fermentation. I mean, um, everybody um, in the cooking world is familiar with the Noma fermentation book. You know, that kind of flew off the shelves. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. It's just, you know, take take any vegetable uh, weigh it, and then if you need to cover it with water, you know, cover it with water so there's no oxygen um, c- touching that vegetable so mold won't grow. And then just take that weight and 2% of that weight, uh, you're going to put in some salt, uh, some sea salt or some kosher salt, and just let it sit. So that's, a, uh, that's the most basic. You can do it in a mason jar you, with a plate on top. You can do it in a plastic bag if you kind of squeeze out the air. Um, that's kind of where we started at Surf and Sand. A lot of the team there, once I came back from Man Race, I kind of grasped that idea and we started playing with it around so we fermented garlic you know mushrooms cabbage uh things like that so it's fairly simple Um, obviously things like kombucha uh and the the more complex kojis and things like that are going to take more time but you know you know get some cabbage shred it up add two percent of its weight in salt and let it sit for a week and um you got something pretty pretty tasty all right for all you california hipsters that are listening you can make your own kombucha so go ahead and get on that uh Right before kind of this all broke out, where was the dining project heading? Kind of right before everybody had to hit pause, what did the future look like for you guys? Um, yeah, so that's a really good question, actually. We, uh, uh, my business partner, Patrick, and I were talking kind of right before this um, to start doing kind of, you know, cooking classes and stuff like that on top of the, the experiences. We were actually set to, you know, do, do an event or two a month, and we were um, on track to do two to three events uh, a month during the summer, you know, just popping up, you know, in and out of Orange County and different locations. Um, 
so that's where we were. I mean, obviously, COVID nineteen has put a halt on the, the everybody's plans. Um, but um, I mean, it was really all about just kind of expand. We already had six months into our uh, our fiscal our fiscal year. We were only six months into the business. And so we were planning on rapidly expanding with the exposure and the, the support that we were getting. And that was kind of obviously all uh, hit a wall with COVID-19. So. so everybody that I've had on the show so far, even though this is very early kind of in the, the life cycle, ideally for this podcast, has either kind of owned a restaurant or been associated with a physical space. The Dining Project doesn't technically have one. You guys don't have your own, I guess, essentially kind of building you borrow kitchens, yeah. uh, you're popping up in other kitchens. So without mm-hmm. having to worry about a physical space, but again, you need to find them. Where do you kind of operate in a current and basically in this current environment that we're in? Um, so, so right now we're just kind of testing recipes and stuff like that. We're actually, you know, setting up menus and doing all of that. Um, obviously, you know, not having a physical space is really benefiting us. Um, Right now, I mean, uh, we're fortunate enough to, to only have a few responsibilities, but that, that only comes with our, our size and, you know, we're pretty much starting up. Um, but yeah, right now we're kind of just working from home. We're testing recipes. Um, or we're, we're kind of in constant communication about, you know, new, new ideas, what trends are going to, how trends are going to change, you know, what people are going to want to do. Because it's not only about, you know, what menu can we make. It's now about how can we put on an event that people are going to want to go to post COVID-19 that makes them feel just as comfortable and just as content and just as, you know, willing to, to let themselves go with, with no stress pretty much as they would have before COVID-19. So that's pretty much where we're at so far. Pop-up dinners are kind of historically more intimate settings. You're talking about smaller, you know, groups, smaller groups of people. Everything is kind of curated. Um, obviously, everything is planned out time-wise, so people aren't kind of lingering, et cetera, et cetera. Does that kind of put you in a beneficial situation moving forward to this, being able to control basically every aspect of the experience? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that was, even even before um, coronavirus, that was, I think, a benefit to us. Um, but definitely post-coronavirus are, you know, we only take 24 reservations at most, you know, so that um, we, we found in a lot of what we've been talking about with Patrick and I is that our business model before coronavirus is kind of what it's going to be like pat or like post coronavirus. Right. So it's not much of a change. We're still going to try to find a restaurant. We're going to still face people out. We're still only going to take the same amount of numbers that we would have done before, you know? So logistically things don't really change uh, in that sense. So it, that is comforting to us uh, because I know not a lot of people can say that, unfortunately. Is it going to make it any harder for you to find a kitchen? Like, for instance, let's say you do find a kitchen um, at a restaurant. The restaurant is kind of worried about its own liability if they're not able to, you know, socially distance your guests for a pop-up or whatever that may be. Does it put any extra strain on trying to find a venue with potentially all these kind of posts? Everyone says the new normal. Are you kind of worried about being able to find spaces in the future due to all this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's a really good question. Um, I mean... When it comes to spaces, it, it's always about kind of obviously location and stuff like that. But with, with you know, obviously what's, what's going to happen next is up in the air. Nobody, nobody really knows. So all we're trying to do is kind of just keep the line of communication open with everywhere and all the small business owners that we've been talking to. Um, 
thankfully a lot of them have you know patio space open air we're kind of uh patrick and i are really set uh that you know outside is best i know um your your podcast with uh, andrew gruel i was listening to and he kind of talked about that also you know opening up space um outside and stuff like that so mm-hmm. um it definitely limits the people we can or the businesses and the spaces that we can approach but um at the end of the day i think um with this change we'll kind of start to find ourselves a little bit more and kind of what actually will work in the long run so pop-ups obviously have always been, you know, taking over a restaurant space on off days or off hours and then having people come to you. Do you think that pop-ups in the future due to the potential of limited spaces available will turn into more of a kind of, I guess, almost kind of like an at-home catering, like a private party type of setup? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting that you, you brought that up because that's something we were actually, you know, I don't want to say too much, but that's something we were looking into as well. You know, I think a lot of people are going to be more comfortable with, you know, you know, just like you, just like you said, you know, getting it either catered or eating in their home. Mm-hmm. You know, it, somebody, somebody's obviously post COVID nineteen would rather have, you know, you know, those at home meal kits are, are definitely going to stick around. You know, I know a lot of restaurants are going to do that, and that just goes to show that people are more comfortable you know, staying in. So, to go back to your question, yeah, I mean, catering to be able to put on a restaurant style environment in somebody's home. I think is the future, um, not a hundred percent of the future, but it's definitely part of the future, not only for what we're doing, but for dining in general. And I think right now we're just trying to find a way to kind of get ahead of that since we've already been flirting with those ideas, you know? Yeah. It's, it's one of my fears as we kind of start to slowly, um, open up and roll out these new kind of guidelines and things like that is that I do. The number one thing is everyone says they miss people. They miss dining together. They miss being around a table. I have a fear that that doesn't necessarily mean at a restaurant. I think it could include dinner parties at home. People just want to be around people. Yeah. I don't know how many of the common, it's going to sound terrible, the common public, basically non kind of people like you or or I or people like that really care about the restaurant environment so much as the sitting around a table and having a meal environment. And that's something yeah. I kind of worry about as we move forward. How have you yeah. been staying busy while you're not doing the dining project, we can move on to some happier things. Cause I know that you are staying busy. I've tasted what you're cooking up myself and it's really awesome. So how have you been passing the time? Um, well, thanks for, thanks. First of all, thanks for saying that. I appreciate the compliments. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're, like I said before, we were testing recipes. We're kind of, we're trying to run our numbers and our finances and kind of get a grasp on, um, on the business side of, you know, what the best route would be financially, you know, depending on, the rent we have to pay and whatever menus we make. And, you know, most importantly, what price point people are going to be willing to go eat out at, you know, um, can, are people going to still pay $200, 300 plus, you know, to, to go out or are people going to want more of a, of a cheaper option? Obviously since, you know, unfortunately a lot of people uh, are out of work and things like that. Um, so that's taking up a lot of the time and thinking about that and kind of trying to plan ahead. But on top of that, yeah, testing recipes. Um, I've been doing, you know, those steam buns are keeping me really busy. There's a lot of support behind those. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's there's not a day where I'm out of the kitchen. So that that's, that's good for me. I'm, I'm really lucky to, to be able to say that. All right. So you glossed over it quickly, but let's back up and talk about these. Not to put more steam bun cooking on your plate, but talk about the steam buns because you're doing that. I know people can buy them. You're dropping them off to people, the no contact drop off. Um, elaborate on that a little bit. 
Yeah. Um, so initially the idea was started uh, just from testing a recipe that I was kind of playing with. I, you know, once quarantine hit, I stuck my head in a few books I hadn't opened for a while. And, um, you know, David, uh, um, David Chang's book, Momofuku, is sitting right on my, my shelf here. And so that's what I was looking at. And I know um, Ron Fudre had done um, a steam bun thing at a Taste of Laguna a few years back. So I kind of just wanted to play with that idea and, and just understand the concept of it a little bit more because the, the idea of the steam bread really resonated with me. And so it really just started about testing a recipe for a dinner, you know, trying to get um, something that I could just, give to somebody like maybe one two bites that would that would be you know satisfying as uh, you know a petty four and a moose douche or something or even as a dessert option or a pre-dessert um and then from there i kind of just ran with it and i noticed that uh in a lot of those asian markets uh, i don't want to you know call anybody out or anything but there are some steam ones on the market now that i think could be improved you know to, to kind of be honest and um, I kind of just set out to do that and initially I had reached out just to my close friends and said hey you know try them you know what do you think and then it kind of caught on and it's gotten a lot of support so that's keeping me busy but it started as simply as just testing a recipe for our consumer in the future and I think those steam buns you know obviously they need to be revised a little bit but there is a place for that uh, on our menus going forward so I mean, if that's the end goal, then, then we're getting there. Uh, and it's, it's nice to know that you know, something I'm doing can sustain, you know, myself through this hard times. But more importantly, it's something that you know, people can share. And I know uh, it's something that brings light to people's day when I deliver them and stuff like that. So, you know, that's what's most important right now. Um, uh, you know, Thomas Keller said, cook, simply cook to nurture. And I think as, as simple as something as a steamed bun is, I think it's something that's definitely just just kind of uplifting the spirits of people, um, especially the ones that have been uh, in contact with me. So, um, yeah, I mean that's that's it's uh, pretty innocent, but but it's kind of it's blowing up, which is uh, unexpected. <laughs> well, it's been one of the coolest things about all this. And first of all, they're freaking delicious. So once we get to the end of the show and you get James's social media, reach out and bother him and make him make you buns and then pay him for them because they're really, really good. Uh, but pretty much I would say almost two thirds of the people that I've had on the show so far are kind of doing exactly what you're doing in the sense that they're just providing a product because it's in their nature to want to create that and basically Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, giving it out to people, whether it's people doing pre-made cocktails and delivering them themselves or people doing kind of, you know, like Josh Lozano is doing the bread. He just moved on to his Basque cheesecakes, things like that. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. a ton of people that are really, they're just creating um, and they're doing whatever they can, not just to kind of survive, but to also provide that experience that they can't do because they're not working, which is provide hospitality for someone in this case, you know, whatever it may be, a cocktail, food, steam buns. And that's kind of been a really, really, really awesome thing to see throughout all of the depressing parts of COVID-19 is just that desire to create and provide that sense of hospitality, even though they don't have a space to do it in. Mm -hmm. As we kind of get through COVID-19 and we move on, you mentioned kind of what do finances look like? What do employees look like? What is it like to have employees for a pop-up? Because you're just popping up, no pun intended, um, you're doing the event. These aren't people that you consistently have on a retainer. What do your finances kind of look like as far as getting staff for events and things like that, as opposed to a regular kind of dine-in restaurant? 
Um, yeah, that's actually a really, really good question. Um, so for us, I mean, obviously, uh, a dine-in restaurant has a staff on payroll. Um, I'm lucky enough to have really good relationships with people that, you know, I've worked with cooks in front of the house uh, and everything like that. So when, when it comes to kind of bringing on that staff, we, uh, we have a core team that supports us, you know, um, servers from restaurants we've worked in before, cooks from, from restaurants I've cooked alongside of um, uh, in, in my life before, in my career before this. And, um, you know, we really just commission those guys as we need them as they're free. So we, say, for example, when we have an event coming up, we'll reach out to, you know, our phone book and we'll say, hey, you know, this day, if you're available, if you're free, you know, we'll, we'll pay you X amount, you know, and, and we just basically sign our payroll for that day. And um, so it's not like we're keeping them on. Uh, it's kind of more just a as needed basis, almost like a freelance thing. Um, and it actually makes it pretty simple for us because, uh, you know, they're all, you know, reliable. They're all there for us. We're lucky enough to have um, the love and the support um, from them, most importantly, because we couldn't do it without them. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky, you know, but at the same time, it's a little more freeing than uh, what I would imagine, you know, a full restaurant having to take care of a full restaurant staff payroll is. So the reason I ask is uh, there's a couple articles that have come out recently as more restaurants kind of reopen for takeout and things like that. There's been a couple of owners um, and kind of restaurant groups that have said it's very hard to staff right now because everybody mm-hmm. is unemployed. They filed for it and everybody is getting the extra 600, you know, things like that. People are making money and there's been a lot of articles, not a lot, but there's been a fair amount uh, from some vocal owners that have said, I can't hire people right now because they're making money not working. Now, personally, mm-hmm. I think that that speaks to the bigger issue of the hospitality industry being underpaid as a whole, because if they were making that money yeah. to begin with, why wouldn't they just come back to work? Um, Definitely. So if this were to end tomorrow, do you think that you would have a very easy time finding a staff or do you think that it would be difficult? Um, I mean, for, for the situation that, that we're in, I would say it's pretty simple because we kind of go to the same, you know, pocketbook the same the same lineup uh, every time and we know that um, those guys that have been with us guys and girls uh, are, are reliable and want to help out you know so it's, it's not that um, we're, we're asking too much of them it's just hey you know come help serve tables pour wine and and and, and cook uh, just for, for just for one night you know I'll do I do all the prep uh, and Patrick does all of the wine and we kind of take care of all of the heavy lifting on our own and all we ask of our staff is just say hey you know Help me while while I'm out talking to guests. Help me, you know, um, grill some steaks. Help me plate, you know, because I can't obviously do it all myself. Mm-hmm. But um, um, to answer your question, I don't think, you know, knock on wood, hopefully um, they're not going anywhere and um, um, it's not too difficult for us. But I definitely see what you're saying about uh, how the industry is underpaid um, and that I think it's also work that's underappreciated as well. And I feel that a lot of the staff, you know, they, they don't want to come back and deal with, you know, everything that's going to come, all the contingencies that are going to come with this, this future of dining, you know? And I think a lot of people are really comfortable if they are, you know, like you said, collecting all of those benefits, then why would they, you know, worry up more to make less? So I, I can definitely see that. Um, so we're just trying to, you know, give back to the people that help us um, uh, and make it obviously as fair and as beneficial for them so that they don't feel like they, they 
are benefiting by not helping, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. or, or, or assisting. But um, like I said, too, it also helps that they're, they're close to close. So let's touch on the consumer aspect of the finances of restaurants. I'm a I'm of the mindset that most menus are too large, so you're carrying too much food cost and trying to make everything available to the consumer, um, but also yeah. a fairly underpriced. Which I think if some people look around menus on Yelp, they'll be like, "What do you mean? That's you know that's that's not underpriced." Well, it kind of is if you understand where the product's coming from and the labor that goes into it. Uh, you mentioned that you know people may not have that issue of going out, spending two, $300 on a night out. I've been guilty of that in the past. I have no idea how, because God knows being a food writer is not a millionaire's job. Um, yeah. But I think that there's kind of a democratic aspect to that where people are you know, spending X amount of dollars, but they're getting to spend it at potentially you know, multiple locations. They're deciding how they do it. What's it like to try and sell people on the cost of a pop-up where everything is curated for them, where you're kind of removing those decisions in order to provide an experience? Is that a hard sell? And then also, what's that sell going to be like post-COVID-19? Um, yeah, re- really, really interesting. Um, that's something we're learning, honestly, if I'm being transparent. It's something that you know we're playing with price points, and, and especially after COVID-19, when this all opens up, it's, it's what... At the end of the day, what are people willing to pay for what they're getting, right? But, um, and I agree with you, a lot of restaurants that I've not been to, you know, even, like especially the non-chained restaurants um, are trying to do, I think, too much. I think they're trying to fit in with everybody else. So they're expanding so broad. And I think that's the beautiful thing about, you know, smaller venues, smaller restaurants, uh, and not necessarily what we're doing particularly, but the style of what we're doing offers um, what we found the, the guest who likes to go out to eat, the foodie, the, the person who understands someone like yourself, you know, uh, we're, we're definitely not targeting um, the, the, you know, somebody who wants to go out and to, just to show off, you know, working at a Ritz Carlton and working at Circumstance, especially you see a lot of people who have um, made their reservations to go just to say that they went, you know, and not appreciate the food. And I think that's uh, the number one, I don't want to say sin, but I think that's the number one, you know, um, factor in, in why chefs are doing what they're doing because, um, you know, every chef is, has, has a style and stuff like that. But I think there's only a select amount of quote unquote foodies that really, really understand and care about where their food's coming from. So um, to answer your question, we're targeting those people and we're doing our best to tell the stories, introduce them to the purveyors. You know, we're putting all of our purveyors on our menu so they can go to their website. They can buy, you know, if we make a, uh, an ice cream out of tea, we'll give you the, the purveyor that makes our tea so you can go buy those from her, you know, our, our fishermen, our, our, our distributors for our, our meats and everything like that. So um, I think coming back to, to answer that is it's not as difficult for us because we're targeting the people who are willing to pay that, you know, whereas a lot of restaurants are more so trying to fit in with what they think either trends are or what people will like. Yeah. Not to turn this into a David Kinch episode, but when you're dealing with a pop-up and this is unrelated to COVID-19, thank God, because God knows we're probably both sick of hearing that word. Uh, what's it like having to handle allergies? Because I know that David Kinch is 
works around kind of customers' needs, things like that for, you know, kind of menu design. Uh, what's it like handling a pop-up where you're doing all the prep, everything is curated, it's a preset menu, but you may have someone with a, you know, allergy, legitimate or not, speaking of the gluten-free people? Sure. I mean, um, it's, it's always interesting. I mean, for the most part, a lot of the people that come to our events particularly understand what they're getting into, you know, but we have had concern or people reaching out to us saying, Hey, this looks really, you know, looks really awesome. And I really want to go uh, and everything else like that, but I don't eat meat and I'm gluten free and this and that. So when it comes to those situations, we, we do our best because we are only serving 24 people. It isn't too much of a hassle to kind of go out of our way and just, you know, source something different from them or for them. I mean, uh, or just kind of to change a recipe. So, Here's an example. Um, we, I wanted to do a cookie, kind of an homage to David Kench uh, with smoked flour and uh, the, the California granola and seeds on top, kind of similar to the cookie that he does uh, as well, but kind of make it more Southern California. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about, you know, what if there are gluten-free people? You know, we, we can curate the rest of a menu around that, but what if we want a staple that we serve every time, you know, and, and we want that to be consistent? So we thought about it and we said, you know, there's a, there's a real... You know, the Mexican heritage in Southern California is pretty strong. And that's something we're trying to kind of um, showcase. So we decided to make that cookie with corn flour instead of, you know, uh, wheat flour to kind of, um, um, to um, kind of what's our appeal to those you know, gluten-free, because obviously that's the most popular. Um, so it, it's all about just putting together many and also being understanding about, you know, people want to come, they want to support you, but there's something hindering it. And I think there's too much um, negativity in the culinary world about it. Like, hey, I made it this way, and that's how it's going to be eaten. If you don't can't deal with it, then you know I didn't make it for you. You know, I think that's something that's kind of underlying in the industry. And uh, David Kench is really good about, you know, I spent hours in his kitchen just prepping ten different things for the same dish for ten different options that night. You know, so it really kind of drove home that fact of like people are willing to support you and. And, and experience what you're doing, you just have to understand where they're coming from. And I think the one thing that I took away from, from him was, can you plan ahead so that it doesn't surprise you? And I don't think enough restaurants are doing that. Speaking of restaurants, kind of when this is all over, um, what are, you know, what are like two or three restaurants that you can't wait to get back and have a meal at? Oh, uh, Baca is one. Uh, I can't wait to go back there. Um, another one, I mean, a lot of the restaurants that I like are doing takeout. You know, I live uh, in Lakewood, so like the Lakewood Long Beach area. But I know I really, really can't wait to go see the staff at Surf and Sand again, uh, if I'm being honest. Um, and then there's a restoration down in Long Beach that's um, um, doing really well. And they actually had a fire. So I can't wait to go back um, once this all opens up and support them again. So, um, you know, everywhere from Laguna Beach to Long Beach. Yeah, there's so many great dining options out there. It's wild. Do you guys have any idea of a timeline on when the dining project may be back? Or are you just kind of playing it by ear, waiting for the other restaurants to open and then going from there? Uh, we're kind of just waiting to see what happens. We uh, we don't want to be the first one kind of jumping the gun, but uh, we obviously don't want to be the last of the party. So we, um, like I had touched on before, it's, right now we're just trying to straighten out our finances and get everything into a package. So when things open, we can just say, hey, we have X, Y, and Z. Let's do it rather than wait for something 
and then plan around it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Patrick had called me today and said that, you know, there's new news in Laguna Beach. You know, obviously Orange County is updating every day between all of the media sites that we follow. Um, and we're just trying to make the most informed decision, not only to, to get the revenue and, and the guests that we need to sustain what we're doing, but also to make them feel comfortable that it's not so, you know, outlandish or risky to come and experience that. So, um, yeah, to, to answer your question, it's, for us, it's all about just having the game plan. So when the, when the gates drop, we can come out sprinting rather than trying to figure out the logistics from, you know, the options that we're given. Are there any logistics that you never had to consider before that you do now, whether it's kind of like partitions, like I, I just saw on social media that the winery in Newport Beach is installing partitions in between their tables, things like that. Are there any things that you have to consider post COVID-19 that you did not ever think you would have to before? Um, I mean, maybe I haven't thought about it. Is I mean, I, I kind of touched on it earlier, but I think our structure of what we were doing for the dining project was facing the tables, giving everyone their, like the intimacy without having to touch elbows with the person next to them was really important to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, sanitation is extremely important in the industry. Um, so uh, I think our our structure, we thought a lot of, we thought of a lot of ways to kind of be different before we even launched Dining Project. Mm-hmm. And I think those are now kind of, we didn't know it at the time, but those are paying off now post COVID-19 because that's kind of what we were doing before this. Gotcha. Um, I mean, the one thing that we have to think about the most now is clientele and what they're willing do. Because you can put the best product out there, but if if a social change has kind of fluctuated the the demand or the desire for that you know product or service, then it doesn't really matter how good you are if you can't kind of touch like come to terms with what the the community is saying as well. So that's probably the most um, the one thing that we kind of get a, a handle on is what are people going to want. Because it's so everything's so up in the air right now that nobody can predict. And if somebody right now said that they, they know, then you know I'll tell you that they're lying. So yeah. that's that's the one thing that I think Patrick and myself, but I think that's also every other restaurant in general. Yeah, I know. I agree. I hate to put you on the spot with it because there are no right answers, and you know the information mm-hmm. changes daily. I can't tell you how many updated emails I get from PR people and chefs with changed yeah. updates and regulations and all this. So. It's hard. It's a hard question to answer because there is no answer because we just don't know yet. All right, James, exactly. if people wanted to find you, if they wanted to find the Dining Project on social media, where can they do that? Uh, dining Project can be found uh, on Instagram at the Dining Project OC uh, online www.thediningprojectoc.com. Uh, I can be found at James Cabinet Culinary. Uh, that's online or on Instagram. I kind of really stay to those those platforms. It kind of keeps me. Um, but yeah, those are my tags. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. Feel free to DM me. Uh, feel free to ask me questions. Feel free to just you know shoot the breeze. You know that's that's what I think people need these days. And I, I would love to kind of touch those. Um, anybody who wants to kind of come in contact, I would love to talk to. And get some steam buns. Absolutely get exactly. those. <laughs> well, brother, look, man, I don't want to take up any of your time. God knows you probably got buns to cook and things to do. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to kind of sit down and 
be candid and kind of give a different uh, view from a different aspect. I, I think that when this all hit, everybody thought restaurants, but it's it's there's also bars, there's pop-up groups, there's catering. I mean, there's so many other aspects of this industry. So I appreciate the time yeah. and the honesty. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, giving me the, uh, the opportunity to kind of um, say some things that I've wanted to say. So I appreciate you. That's an absolute pleasure, my friend. All right, my brother. Thank you so much. We will chat with Martin you soon. Robert. Take care. All right, take care. Bye-bye. That was James Cavanis James. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, as a reminder, all of the rest of the episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, with more platforms coming. Uh, you can get them early if you're on Patreon, as you already know at this point. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Be sure to hit him up. He's doing some really great stuff. Again, I, I've eaten the buns. I'm going to order them again. What he's doing to stay busy is really awesome. And just the concept of pop-ups in general is awesome. And it's something that I really can't wait to get back to once we are all on the other side of this. Um, again, at the time of this recording, it looks like we might be sometime soon, which is awesome. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, support your local restaurants, uh, and be good. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you for the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Katie Cassie, Eric Lutz, Serena Warino, Talia Samuels, Cheryl McCarthy. Thank you for your support.